It's Friday, May 3rd. Then from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. Pennsylvania has one of the most extensive state park and forest systems in the nation. And for decades, it's been growing in both size and popularity. Unfortunately, state funding for the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources hasn't kept pace with that growth. State parks, they're staffed about where they were in 1970 when we Hmm. had fewer parks and about 12 to 13 million fewer visitors. And staffing is just the tip of the iceberg. Chronic underfunding has created a $1 billion backlog of delayed maintenance and repairs to park and forest infrastructure. And that's a real problem in a state where recreation on public lands accounts for a substantial portion of a $29 billion outdoor industry, the fifth largest in the U.S. Our parks and forests are the goose that lays the golden eggs. They're huge economic drivers for the Commonwealth, but we're starving the goose. We'll look at the state of our state parks and forests coming up. But first... I am really uh, proud to be here for this momentous occasion, and that is to recognize the Eastern Hellbender, also known in the West as the Allegheny Alligator. Uh, as the official amphibian of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It's North America's largest salamander species, and now it's Pennsylvania's state amphibian. With Governor Tom Wolf's signature, the eastern hellbender becomes the first creature in more than 40 years to receive an official designation from the Commonwealth. It's the result of a three-year campaign by the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's Pennsylvania Student Leadership Council. Council President Emma Stone says the slimy creek dweller is important because it's particularly susceptible to the impacts of stream impairment. Hellbenders have extra folds of skin on their sides. Since they breathe through their skin, this increased surface area from the folds brings in more oxygen for them to breathe. But this is also potentially life-threatening to the hellbender because of sediment pollution. The pores on their skin that they breathe through can be easily clogged by excess sediment. Senator Gene Yaw of Lycoming County led the legislative push, introducing a resolution that cleared the Senate in February. That effort culminated in a 191-6 vote, recognizing the hellbender late last month in the House. I cannot think of a better symbol that symbolizes what Pennsylvania thinks about clean water than the hellbender. The hellbender is the canary in the coal mine. If you have hellbenders in your stream... Chances are the water is of very, very good quality. The legislation does not confer any special protected status on the hellbender itself. However, self-styled hellbender defenders say that creating awareness of the species can help to focus attention on larger issues of water quality. Twenty nineteen marks the one hundred twenty fifth anniversary of Pennsylvania's system of state parks and forests. With one hundred twenty one parks and two point two million acres of forest land, it is one of the nation's largest. And with more than forty million annual visitors, it's a major factor in the Commonwealth's burgeoning outdoor recreation industry, which generates billions of dollars in consumer spending and employs millions of Pennsylvanians. But after years of inadequate funding from the General Assembly, wear and tear on park and forest infrastructure is accumulating. And if the neglect continues, the future of our public lands is uncertain. That's the message of a report issued earlier this year by the Pennsylvania Parks and Forests Foundation. The 45-page document details exactly where and why funding is needed. Here to explain is PPFF President Marcy Mowry, our guest today. Marcy, welcome to Pennsylvania Legacies. Thank you. Happy to be here. Could you start with a little background about PPFF, your mission, uh, and what you do? 
The Pennsylvania Parks and Forest Foundation is a nonprofit organization that was formed in 1999 as a way of users of state parks and state forests to engage with their parks and forests in a different way. Our mission is to steward our parks and forests through engagement in volunteerism, recreation, and education. And to that capacity, we have uh, 45 friends groups that function under our nonprofit umbrella. We advocate on behalf of parks and forests, and we engage with projects that help to improve the visitor experience. So is it a thing that you do periodically where you kind of take stock of infrastructure in state parks and forests? And if so, when was the last time that, that you took a look? About six years ago, we looked at where things were with the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, particularly our, our state parks and state forests. But because we're working so closely with our parks and forests on a daily basis, we started seeing some of the needs um, growing. And because of that, we received a grant from the Richard King Mellon Foundation to really look more in-depth at the maintenance and infrastructure needs across the system. And that was the creation of this report that we're going to talk about today. So I want to talk about like what, what you actually found in the report. But first, could you outline a little bit the methodology? How do you go about measuring something like this? Well, the methodology was to look at some existing studies, um, to have conversations with the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, the Bureaus of State Parks, State Forests, and the Bureau of Facility Design and Construction to really look at what the needs were and to gather the data. And we initially thought this was going to be like a three-month project, and it ended up taking over a year um, because one question led to another, led to another. And we really wanted to make sure that we were accurate in what we were presenting. And does DCNR not keep track of these things internally? They do keep track of them internally. They were very helpful in helping us to get the data when we requested it. But the it's it's complex. There is DCNR owns a lot of infrastructure. Um, when we were putting together the report, we were looking for sort of a benchmark to how to explain how large the system is. And our parks and forests are 2.5 million acres, which is like two Delawares. Hmm. So it's equivalent of the department managing two states of Delaware. So that kind of put it into perspective. So, you know, it was a lot to gather and, and pull together and analyze and sy- synthesize. All right. Well, if I can put you on the spot and ask you to synthesize it all into a sort of a, a couple of sentences, what is the, the top line takeaway from this report? I like to say that the top line takeaway is that, you know, our, our parks and forests are the goose that lays the golden eggs. Mm-hmm. They're huge economic drivers for the Commonwealth, but we're starving the goose. We have a billion-dollar need in infrastructure and maintenance, um, ranging from, you know, annually replacing portions of the 30,000 picnic tables we have in the system, to dams that are, are structurally deficient, to water and sewage treatment facilities that aren't function, functioning properly. And through all of that, one of the takeaways is that our state park and state forest staff work really, really hard, but they're understaffed. So our goal is to hopefully raise awareness, build build stakeholder coalitions, and to have money invested, not just in maintenance and infrastructure, but to fully fund our parks and forests the way they need to be uh, staffed. How did we get to this point? Pennsylvania has this long, proud history of, of great public you know, uh, state parks and forests, and yet here, here we're in this situation where uh, DCNR is understaffed, underfunded. What's the backstory there? How did we get to this point? I, I think that the simplest thing to say is that incremental cuts over the course of time 
um, allowed the, the staffing numbers to go down. In state parks, they're staffed about where they were in 1970 when we mm. had fewer parks and about 12 to 13 million fewer visitors. And state forests, are it's kind of about the same, and yet we're seeing more pressures on our parks and forests from visitation, um, rain, flood events, invasive plants, invasive insects. So I think that those slow incremental cuts, and as you know, if you're a homeowner, if you don't repair the roof, all of a sudden you're repairing the roof, the ceiling, maybe replacing the furniture, putting in a new kitchen. So some things that we hadn't addressed have become larger problems. These things kind of cascade. They sure do. I think another facet of it is not just just straight budget cuts, but there's also been a bad habit that the legislature has gotten into of uh, rating special funds that have been set aside for conservation and recreation toward other purposes. Is that a big factor here? Uh, yeah, it is a factor. Right now, actually, we're, we're, we're protecting the Environmental Stewardship Fund and the Keystone Fund from potentially being diverted away from maintenance and infrastructure projects. DCNR used to use um, the money that they raised through cabin rentals, campsites, th- those types of, of money coming in. That was about $23 million a year. That used to be rolled over into maintenance and infrastructure, but as operational funding diminished – some of that money had to be rolled over into operations as opposed to maintenance. So it's constantly protecting the funds and um, trying to make sure that enough money is allocated, f- not just for operations, but for projects. Can we drill down a little bit on uh, some of the infrastructure needs that you have identified in this report? What are we talking about specifically that, that needs attention? Well, it's it's a wide variety of infrastructure. And when we're talking state parks and state forests, you have to realize we're not just talking about the built environment. Right. It also includes the natural environment. And, for example, in state forests, some of the things that we're talking about are Pennsylvania has a legacy of um, gas wells and oil wells and coal mining. And so some of those those legacy issues still need to be remediated, well plugging, uh, abandoned mine remediation, Um as I mentioned, invasive species and invasive insects, but also, you know, water, sewage treatment plants, bridges, roads, um, maintaining things not just so that they stay in good working order, but also looking at how we keep our parks and forests relevant for the changing population and the changing face of Pennsylvania. Yeah, let's let's focus on that a little bit because it's an important theme in the report that you've put out. Why is it important to ensure that parks and forests have accessibility, I guess, for people with different needs and backgrounds? Well, Pennsylvania is unique in, in, in many ways in that our parks and forests are, are free admission, free parking, which we highly support. So we mm-hmm. don't support charging uh, an entrance fee. And so people have access to them. And, and this makes our parks and forests economic engines for the Commonwealth. And we know that when people get outdoors, they spend more time being active. Um, one of the number one reasons that people give for going out to a park or a forest is to reduce stress. And we know that when we're getting people out, we're improving human health, we're creating a better quality of life for the Commonwealth, and we're, we're building the economy of the state. So this is why we think it's important to continue to invest in our state parks and state forests and why we need to adapt as our population ages, as the ethnicity of our population changes, and really to adapt, too, because Pennsylvania is seeing a little bit of a brain drain where young people are graduating college and then they're going to other states. We have some of those same attractions here in Pennsylvania. We're just not letting the people know that we have them. When you talk about the, the goose that lays the golden egg, is there a calculable economic cost 
to foregoing some of these urgently needed upgrades and repairs and maintenance? Can you point to specific economic impacts? We can point to specific case studies. One of the things that we're trying to do right now is we're talking to different economists to help us create a a calculator that counts up to, to look at what the cost is going to be for every day that or every month that we ignore these needs. But we have examples of where it, when we've invested, it has increased tourism and job creation, such as at Kinzoo State Park in the northern tier of Pennsylvania. Or on the other hand, at, at Pima Tuning State Park, a campground needed to be closed. And the community closest to that campground really felt the impact of not having the visitors. So you can see like how failing to address things in a timely manner leads to increased costs down the road. We can see how that sort of has a ripple effect and affects communities, local economies, and and so on from there. What about the other, kind of the other end of the preventative end? What's the return on investment of making some of these proactive improvements and upgrades? Maybe some of it is just playing catch up to where we should be, but what benefits can Pennsylvania reap if we if we actually do this right? Well, let's look at a couple of facts and figures. Pennsylvania ranks fifth in the nation in terms of outdoor recreation spending. Um, outdoor recreation supports 219,000 jobs across the Commonwealth and brings in over $29 billion of revenue to the state. Um, a study in 2010 found that for every $1 invested in a state park, um, for every $1 invested, $12.41 comes back in tax revenue to the Commonwealth. So that in and of itself, in my mind, is an argument. But, you know, again, using your ho- own home as an analogy, if you fix something early on, it costs less to fix and it reduces, you know, your own your maintenance needs. So if, if we would look at some of these things that need to be repaired and we would invest the time and the money, it would make the Parker Forest more attractive. It would increase safety in some cases, particularly if we're talking about dams or bridges. And it could move staff time onto other things that they can be addressing. A good example of that, uh, not to ramble on, but a good example would be when you have um, water or sewer lines that are antiquated and leaking, you spend a lot of time monitoring those water and sewage lines and hoping that they don't leak on a critical weekend, so let's say the 4th of July <laughs> weekend, and you have to send everybody home. But, you know, if you had lines that were in optimum shape, that time could be spent doing other things. That could be spent roofing a building or, you know, engaging visitors in some way. And we really could allocate your time in a more meaningful way. And our park and forest staff are, as I said, they're very hardworking. There just aren't enough of them, and there's a lot of projects. Yeah. I know that one thing that's going on within DCNR right now, there's a big push toward putting more green renewable energy infrastructure in state parks and forests, partially as a way to sort of showcase the technology itself and make the broader case for why we should be adopting cleaner energy sources uh, more generally, but also as a way to control costs and Mm -hmm. improve DCNR's bottom line. And that actually dovetails with a lot of what's in your report. You flag some green infrastructure investment opportunities. Exactly. I mean, if 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 you're doing the investments or the jobs properly, you can reduce costs. Um, the green infrastructure is, is one of those examples where you're reducing energy costs, uh, which reduce your operational cost. And using the water and sewage treatment again, you're spending a lot of money, you know, not just monitoring, but you're losing water that you've treated through leaky systems. Um, and if, and if you, that was system was optimal, the operational cost would be lower. So it makes good in business sense, and we know maybe we should be looking at a, a, how we operate them 
from from a state government perspective, but how do you know if this were your business, how right. would you would you be investing in it, or would you be allowing it to crumble all around you? Mm-hmm. So, so along those lines, then what are you and your organization looking to uh, the state government to do, say, in the next year? What what will be on your wish list to, to move toward these goals that you've identified? I think a couple things are on our wish list. One is we would like to see uh, the staffing at, at levels that are needed within state parks and state forests, as well as in the Bureau of Facility and Design and Construction, which is where a lot of the projects flow through, the bureau in which um, these projects flow in, in DCNR. The other thing is we'd like to see uh, our ultimate goal is $100 million a year invested in park and forest maintenance. And not just a shot in the arm here and a shot in the arm there, because that's part of the challenge. If, if you have unpredictable funding, it's hard to plan projects mm-hmm. out in a meaningful way and in a way that saves money. Um, so we would like to see $100 million a year being allocated for park and forest maintenance. Not operations. You know, this is above and beyond what's allocated for operations. And while that might sound like a lot, that's really less than $8 per Pennsylvanian mm-hmm. on a yearly basis. Seems like a good deal. Yeah, and you f- you think about the the amount of return we get on that with with the visitorship, the uh, the tax revenue that the government takes in. It's it's a good investment. Okay, so you are the voice of the friends groups statewide, and by extension, you're sort of the advocate for the public and and their stake in the parks and forests system. What can Pennsylvanians, ordinary folks, do to support these goals? Well, right now we're working on a, a microsite on our website to allow people to to join in our voice and and learn about different activities that they can take. We know that it cannot just be the Pennsylvania Parks and Forest Foundation alone. We're hoping for our our sister organizations like the Pennsylvania Environmental Council to also loan their voice. But it's also the citizens, and these are your parks and forests. You have an environmental right in our state constitution to have these things protected and invested in. And you're also the stakeholders. It, it, It has to be this cross-section of voices. It has to be the businesses that benefit from the parks and forests being there. It has to be the, the school bus that crosses over a bridge that's a state forest bridge to get to a stu- you know one of their students. Those, all those voices need to combine to say, hey, enough is enough. Let's start investing in these, these wonderful system. Because as you said, our system has won awards in the past, but we're letting it crumble around us. Marcy Maury from the Pennsylvania Park and Forest Foundation. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me here. You can read the full report from the Pennsylvania Parks and Forests Foundation on the condition of state park and forest infrastructure on their website. It's at paparksandforests.org. And we'll link directly to the report from our website in the show notes for this episode. You'll find that at pecpa.org. All of our past episodes of Pennsylvania Legacies are available to stream there as well. You can subscribe using your podcast app of choice. Follow the Pennsylvania Environmental Council on Facebook and Twitter. We're at PECPA. One more time, our website is PECPA.org. We'll have another episode Friday after next. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 